uh, people of God in Christ, why, why do we love to see people fail? Why do we love to see people fail? It starts uh, at the level of gossip. Gossip is uh, based upon the occasion of knowing that someone has failed, uh, maybe in some minor way, but, uh, but the gossip grows as the failure grows. Uh, have you heard? Did you know? Uh, can you imagine? And so forth in the realm of gossip. But the sinful love to see people fail continues uh, in the more modern form of online videos. I'm, I'm sure you've, uh, you've spent time watching YouTube, and you probably know that you can watch an almost endless a collection of videos showing people failing, uh, things going wrong, sadly even people getting hurt by their mistakes. And what's the attraction? On, on, on one hand, we might consider it by psychological analysis. Uh, perhaps we love to see uh, people fail because it makes us feel better uh, about ourselves, figuring, figuring that, well, we didn't make that mistake uh, we might have our own troubles, but at least we didn't do that, uh, or at least we don't have that trouble. On the other hand, uh, from a theological understanding by God's Word, maybe we love to see people fail because it feeds our sinful nature on, on, a, on, a, on an even more primitive level from a deeper and darker place within us. We know from the teaching of God's Word that sin is not just what we do, but but what we are. And uh, and the more we study Scripture and the longer we we live in order to know the, the sin of our hearts so we might understand our love to see people fail as a as a very basic and black love to see things go wrong. As much as we dislike having things go wrong in the course of our own day, as much as we regret and lament our own mistakes and their consequences, yet we, we just love to see things go wrong, so long as it's in the experience of another person. Well, things have gone quite horribly wrong in the life and experience of Dinah, Jacob's only daughter, which means that things have gone quite horribly wrong in the life of Jacob's family, including his several sons. Uh, This is where we started last time. Jacob and his two wives, Leah and Rachel, along with their already extensive family, they have arrived back in the Promised Land. And the picture that this makes for us is, uh, is of our place in the world. Uh, we are those who stand in covenant relationship with the owner of the land, but there are others living on his land. It's like, uh, uh, it's like being given a lease for a house uh, or a piece of property. Uh, we move in on the basis of that lease, uh, only to find that the former tenants are still there and uh, that they do not intend to leave. Uh, Instead, they claim uh, the property as their own, uh, and that's where Jacob was, and and that's where we are. And how do you live with that? 
That's really the, the question of the Christian life. And, and it's not just the imposition of people hanging around on your property. It's even the suffering of the world's abuse. It's the world's effort to make you forget the, the lease, so to speak, that you rightly hold. It's, it's the world's temptation to get you to join them in their trespassing on the rightful owner's land. And that's exactly where things are as we continue with the story told in Genesis 34. A, a great injustice has been committed. The question is, how do you fix it? The point was made last time that is, as much as we think we can fix it and make it right and achieve true justice in a world of sin, it will never happen apart from Christ we can only mitigate the wrong. We can, we can only try, never fully succeeding, to lessen the damage. And here now is Hamor's attempt at mitigation. Let's just settle this thing by a marriage, is his proposal. Verse 8 records, But Hamor uh, spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. But there are two problems with this proposal. First, uh, the proposed marriage does not, truly, uh, does not truly cover up or make right the wrong that has been done. Second, the proposal for marriage is contrary to the will of God for His people, contrary to covenant faithfulness. So here we have what we might call the invitation to assimilation. Because Hamor said even more. He said in verse 9, take, uh, Make marriages with us, give your daughters to us, and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us, and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it, and get property in it. Again, the problems are several and, and serious. First, Hamor is using the offense of his son as a reason to tempt Jacob and his sons into covenant unfaithfulness. Basically, he was saying, uh, hey, here's, here's a way we can fix this problem. My son has assaulted your daughter, so let's fix it by you being unfaithful to your God. Can we hear it that way? Because that's really the orientation and the, the explanation of his proposal. My son did the wrong. Now let's fix it by you doing wrong. Intermarry with us and be unfaithful to your God. But how does that fix it? It certainly does not fix it. Instead, it shows us the convoluted logic of the world. Great wrong has been done against the people of God. We pointed out last time that the sons of Jacob were very angry for what had been done to their sister. She had been assaulted. That's the nicer word for it, for the sake of our children hearing this sermon. And, uh, and we made the point that uh, good for them, the sons of Jacob, the brothers of Dinah, they, they should have been angry. Remember that anger is not automatically, it's not inherently wrong. There is such a thing as a righteous anger, which we see in God himself as he, as he, uh, as he gives to, to mankind but receives no thanks. 
And as he sees his people, whom he loves, being victimized by those of the world who are living in rebellion against him. So great wrong had been done, and yet the world's answer to fix it is to do more wrong. Let's just let it go, and the the best way to, to do that is to go even further. Let's all cozy up together and forget about the place of God in all this nasty business. Let's just assimilate. That's, that's the, the invitation of the world. Don't, don't worry about the fence. We can, we can make it right. And the best way to make it right is to agree that there, there's really no wrong here. And let's prove it by going even further. This is the Apostle Paul's point in Romans 1, that apart from the grace of God in Christ, godlessness only leads to more godlessness. In the effort to get rid of the the conviction for sin, man charges all the more into sin. But there is the matter of right and wrong. It's not just tradition. It's, It's not just culture. It's the person and being of God who determines what's right and what's wrong. The only thing to ruin it, to disrupt the plan of man to suppress the truth, is to have people living next door who don't go along with the plan. So that they serve as a constant reminder that it can't be fixed in that way. Christians are a constant reminder to the world that there is a standard to be met, and yet it cannot be met. Assimilation, another word for it is syncretism, which is a word associated with the mission field. Think about a missionary who has left home and family to serve on the mission field. She labors for years with little results to her ministry, until finally some, some fruit begins to come in. The problem is it's, it's a mixture of good and bad fruit. But the fruit is so late in coming that the temptation is to say, oh well, it's not exactly what we were looking for, um, but we'll accept it. The result is assimilation. The result is syncretism, uh, a mixture of faithfulness with unfaithfulness to God's word and and of course that's that's always going to be the case even for you and me there's always more work to be accomplished there's always more discipleship to be done that's that's why our lord said go therefore make disciples baptize them but teach them all that i have commanded you in other words ministry has has only begun at the point of conversion otherwise it will only result in assimilation and syncretism the mixture of unfaithfulness or faithfulness and unfaithfulness uh, to the covenant of god with his people again can we hear it this this is how we must see ourselves our our own life in the in the life of of jacob and in, in the lives of his children the world will always call us to assimilate uh, like an amoeba surrounding and absorbing its food, the, the world will, will simply absorb us if we are willing. Assimilate with us 
So they invite us, syncretize with us, they, they propose. But what is really being said and attempted is, be absorbed by us. Jesus put it this way, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how will its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And note the, note the juxtaposition that, 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 that we go from being salt, the, the thing that, that preserves the, the world, the thing that brings zest and, and blessing to the world, to being nothing more than gravel underfoot in the road. So we can learn by, by this story from the history of redemption to beware, to, to recognize the siren song of the world. The call of the world is to, is to leave the path of faithfulness. Take a break from your pilgrimage through this world. All can be made right. All will be smoothed over. Great comfort and delight can be found by simply assimilating. Wouldn't it be easier to just go along, to, to just drift, to get caught up in the world? But remember the promise of God to Abraham promise renewed to Isaac, carried on by Jacob, that God has set you apart in Christ. The world calls us to assimilate. Christ calls us to be faithful, even as we endure the abuse of those who are living for now on our property. And yet here's another way not to fix it. Second point is the abuse of a sacrament. There is a sense in which the sons of Jacob only answered back with their own offer of assimilation. Hamor proposed that Israel assimilate with them. Jacob's sons answered only if you assimilate with us. Of course, they didn't really mean it, as the story makes clear. But they said in verse 14, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. As I said, as, as the story gets told out, we see that they, they didn't really mean this. They already had their plan in place to carry out vengeance on the people of Hamor. And and here's an early point where we see the the sacrament of circumcision being misunderstood, and in this case, even abused. And here's a a point to review the, the institution and meaning of circumcision. Whenever the Lord's Supper is administered, we we make it a practice to review the institution and meaning of the sacrament, lest anyone uh, abuse it and and lest we miss the meaning and significance of it. Well, Jacob's sons might have uh, thought to review the institution and meaning of circumcision. Let's let's go back to Genesis 12, uh, where we hear God first issuing his unconditional promises to Abraham. I will bless you. I will prosper you. I will protect you from all harm from the world. 
And amid the glory of God's promise to Abraham, the only word missing was the word if. There is no if. Instead, God just said, I'm I'm going to do it. I've decided and it will happen. Buckle up because it's coming. Now go forward to Genesis 15. Abraham is weakening in his faith. It's it's taking too long. Sound familiar? Uh, Is it really real? Uh, Will it actually happen? Can Can it truly be? Yes, says God. And here's an elaborate ceremony by which I will bolster your faith so that you will believe me. And so it happened that God passed through that, that bloody path created by animals that, that uh, Abraham hacked into and drug apart. God walked the path while Abraham slept. That's the key, that Abraham slept. Probably exhausted by the preparations that he uh, had made for this covenant-cutting ceremony by God's own instruction and and prescription. And so Abraham slept, much much as Jesus kept coming back to the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane to find them sleeping. Now to Genesis 17, where God appears again to Abraham and and now calls upon him to keep his covenant. And how so must Abraham keep the covenant of God? He must be circumcised. And not only him, but, but his male children and servants who would also benefit from the blessings of God. And so... How are we to understand circumcision? Was this now the fine print hid at the bottom of the contract? Had God made unconditional promises to Abraham in Genesis 12, in Genesis 13, in Genesis 15? But, well, now here's the catch. You must keep my covenant. Circumcision is what you must do. Oh, and by the way, circumcision really signifies your obedience so that what is really being said is that you must obey me in order to get my blessing. Sorry, I, I forgot to mention this earlier, but, but here's the missing if. In my covenant promises to you, I will bless you if you earn it by your obedience. That's, that's really blasphemy to read Genesis 17 in that way as if God is a wickedly clever salesman coming out with the fine print in the end. But sadly, you see, that's how Israel, you see it maybe most clearly in the Pharisees, that's how they came to understand circumcision. That that circumcision was what they did to get and secure the promises of God. Even more, that circumcision signified all their obedience, obedience in order to merit the blessing of God. And it fits with people still today. They, they, they think there must be an if. Do you remember the, the, the song in uh, The Sound of Music? Uh, nothing comes from nothing. Nothing ever could. So somewhere in my childhood, I must have done something good. Well, that, that's the way the world thinks. 
That's the way Israel came to understand the sacrament of, of circumcision. They did so to preserve their pride. Ah, here's my part. Here's how I can earn it. But they did so also to the ruination of the gospel. The gospel of grace. The gospel in which there is no if. Instead, here's the gospel in Genesis 17. And here's how circumcision was actually a sacrament of grace. That circumcision was a constant reminder to Abraham and to each of his descendants of that bloody, lacerating ceremony in Genesis 15 that Abraham slept through. Even more, circumcision was the reminder and the assurance that God would walk the bloody path. God would come in the person of Christ to go to the cross, to be lacerated, to be severed, all as the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. This review of circumcision could, uh, could really be given, maybe should be given, whenever circumcision uh, is referred uh, to in Scripture. Uh, and it's certainly the case here now, as, as Jacob's sons propose to Hamor and Shechem and all the male members of their tribe to be circumcised. We, we need the review to see the abuse that they were making of the sacrament of circumcision. It, it was a beautiful sacrament. It was a gospel sacrament. It was a sacrament of God's gracious promise to his people. And yet they, they, carried it, they carried it out to carry out their vengeance. Again, their anger was justified. It would have been a, a gross sin if they had not been angry for what Shechem did to Dinah. But here is another way not to fix it not by using the sacrament of circumcision as a tool to gain the advantage over those they wish to kill, hoping to kill them while not incurring death within their own ranks. But that's exactly what happened. Verse 25 records that on the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's uh, Dinah's brothers, uh, took their swords, came against the city while it felt secure, and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. Even more, they plundered the city. There were, seems The text seems to indicate the rest of the brothers came in at this point and helped to plunder the city. And they did it because they had defiled their sister, it says. Again, uh, we can certainly understand their anger. Don't we love to watch movies where the bad guy finally gets what's coming to him? But is this justice? No. And here's another way that justice doesn't get done. Last week I I made the argument that even when uh, offenses uh, get handled in the best possible way, it still falls short of true justice. Only in the cross of Christ is justice achieved. But here is what happens all too often. As as sin is committed, an offense is given, and the retribution is greater than the crime. 
And that's not part, or it's not part of the story here, but, but all too often it, it leads to one offense being overpaid by another, then that offense being overpaid, and so on and on and on. At some point, someone needs to stop the cycle. At some point, someone needs to absorb the wrong and not retaliate. And this is what... This is what our Lord Jesus did. 1 Peter 2.23 says, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. The further passage to draw in here is the the parable of the unmerciful servant. In in Matthew 18, the unmerciful servant was forgiven a, a great debt, but he himself refused to forgive the smaller debt owed to him. And the point is this, that that as we have been forgiven the great debt of our sin, then we must look to forgive those who sin against us. This is exactly what Jacob's sons didn't do. They even used a a sacrament of grace in their sinful vengeance. Circumcision was meant by God to convey to them His grace and to remind them of what God would do by sending His Son. Yet they used the sacrament to gain advantage over their enemies in their vengeance. So finally, the trouble of unfaithfulness. Verse 30 records, Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. So Jacob was afraid of of that same pattern, offense leading to revenge, leading to revenge for the revenge. Where will it stop in this world of sin? The trouble of unfaithfulness is that it only perpetuates sin. And what instead is faithfulness? What What would faithfulness have looked like in this story? A great wrong had certainly been done. There was need for justice. And yet no act of justice could fully right the wrong and undo the injury. This is probably why the sons of Jacob did what they did, because they knew there was no way for them to truly fix it. And so they turned only to participate in the way of the world. They added wrong to wrong. They added sin to sin. And the trouble only grew. And this is why we must practice forgiveness. But forgiveness in light of the cross. The world can talk about forgiveness, but it's always a forgiveness that only forgives and leaves no hope for justice. So for the world, forgiveness is just letting go, mostly for the sake of your own mental health. Just forgive and let it go. But we have a God who will not let it go. 
And it's an aspect of his goodness that he will not let it go. Sin will be punished. The wrong will be righted. It's just that he will absorb the wrong. He will take the punishment upon himself in the person of his son, in the sacrifice he made at the cross. Here again is is the logic of the Christian faith. The world world will accuse us of being illogical in our faith, but but all you have to do is, is to stop and think about it. We all want justice, believer and unbeliever alike. It's, it's built into us by the image of God in us. We are willing to forgive the thief, but we still want our money back. But what if the money is gone, stolen, and then wasted so that it can't be paid back? All, all that's left is a forgiveness apart from justice. And... What if a young girl has been violated? How do you undo that? How do you get her innocence back? You can't. But God can. By way of the cross. So brothers and sisters in Christ, let us understand that God has forgiven us but he forgives us our sins only as justice is met in the cross. For God, forgiveness is not just letting it go and forgetting about justice. With God, forgiveness comes exactly as justice is met in the cross. And this is why you and I must come to the cross of Christ in order to find forgiveness. If we say, oh, God is love and, and, and he will not judge me for my sin, then, then we are sorely mistaken. God is love and he is the God of justice. And we should understand that because we too want justice. We know that there can be no true satisfaction within our souls until the money gets paid back, until the innocence gets restored. But we also know that left to itself, the world cannot achieve this. Only God can. And he has through the cross of Jesus Christ. The answer to sin is not more sin. The way of forgiveness is not just letting it go. The answer to sin and the way of forgiveness is the cross of Christ where justice is met, and where a just forgiveness is found. So come to the cross. Live each day before the cross. Love the cross, because it's God's gracious answer to sin, and it's our only hope for both justice and forgiveness. Amen. Please pray with me. God, our Savior, we thank you for the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. There the price of sin was paid. There forgiveness was provided to us as sinners. Grant us to see that this is your 
your plan for both justice and forgiveness. And we pray that we would not answer sin with sin, but, O Lord, that we would live daily at the cross to recognize that only in Christ is all made right. We long for that great and final day when indeed his kingdom will be consummated. And uh, we pray that we might be faithful until, until that great day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.